This episode is brought to you in collaboration with Go With Yammo. Go With Yammo is an art exhibition app which helps you to find the exhibitions, art fairs and art events happening all around you. The app displays exhibitions based on your location, so the one closest to you will be at the top of the list, but if you're planning a trip, you can of course change your location to a different city. What makes the app really fun is that whenever you are at an exhibition, you can check in and earn points, which can then be used to redeem prizes from the in-app store, such as prints, exhibition tickets, books and more. Go With Yamo also create custom virtual exhibitions for galleries and artists. They will be creating the virtual space for our upcoming Art on a Postcard summer auction, which is definitely worth checking out. You can find all of these on their website, along with some great blog content, including artist interviews, exhibition recommendations, quizzes and reviews. The app is free to download from the App Store and the Google Play Store, so make sure you check it out and visit their website, www.gowithyamo.com. That's www.g-o-w-i-t-h-y-a-m-o.com. Hello and welcome to Art on a Podcast, the podcast created by Art on a Postcard. I hope you're very well this fine day. You might have seen that our summer auction is now live, so please feel free to go and check it out at artonapostcard.com. And if you need to register to vote with Druitts, uh, then you can do so via their website, um, which is the auction house that we use for our auctions. Um, As I say, all this info can be found on our website. So today I have a super special episode for you, chatting with two of our participating artists in the upcoming auction. Um, We start with Ben Edge and move into something totally different with Dave White. So there's lots of fun to be had over the next just under an hour or so. So firstly, Ben Edge, um, a painter who has a fascination for British folklore and ritual, I interviewed Ben about this almost exactly a year ago, so do check out that episode um, after this one if you found what we discussed interesting. It's actually quite poignant that a year ago when I interviewed Ben, it felt like something very much on the outskirts of sort of common interests. And in this episode, Ben is at the Crypt Gallery in King's Cross, where his exhibition that he co-curated with the Museum of British Folklore is in full swing. And they're having so much success and fun and and really enjoying it. Um, And it's had such a great turnout. So it's kind of snowballed into something even just over this year, which is really exciting to hear about. So Ben is down in the Crypt during the episode, which, as a side note is to blame for the occasional dip in sound quality. So (laughs) any interference you hear, please put down to some ghostly or otherworldly interference from the crypt and not just the occasional bad signal because he's down in the crypt. But it was the perfect place to call him as it's where his exhibition is. It's this sort of labyrinthy kind of underground space that just feels really even through the phone seems really 
evocative and cool. So um, their exhibition is on until July the 4th, as you'll hear. So it features some extraordinary objects, artworks and curiosities. Um, ben also talks me through his cards for our upcoming auction, taken from three different kind of magical sites in Britain that will form the backbone of his upcoming project. So it's a kind of, as we discussed in the episode, a dot, dot, dot to what's to come for Ben. So, yes, he talks me through these cards. They are lots 387 to 389. And like I said, if you enjoy it, check out our previous episode together between me and Ben. And I will see you after the interview for some more... Dave White. Oh, I think you're just connecting. Oh yeah, I can. Yeah, okay, great. How are you? Hello, I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, oh. really well, thanks. Sorry, this bloody thing, so I've never done Zoom on my phone. It keeps flashing off. Let me get the page back. <laughs> Here we are. Okay. I'm in. Can I do it that way? Is that now? That oh, is perfect. We'll leave yes. it like that. Great. Amazing. So, uh, You've been keeping well. Yeah, yeah, as well as I can do. It's been it's been all right. It was summer solstice yesterday, wasn't it? Did you do anything? Um, yeah, well, we tried to mark it. I did a bit of meditating, but the weather yeah. was really shit and I wasn't really I know, getting wasn't... like that summer feeling. Um, exactly. what about you? Uh well I you know what I went swimming in the ponds that's got was nice, but like you say, it was just pouring. So it wasn't really a time to go and watch the sunrise. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So are you in the crypt right now? Obviously. Yeah, I am. So it's we're shut on Mondays, Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but a lot of people have been not been able to get here other days, so I'm just booking like private appointments. Mm-hmm. But next week I'm going to open up all week for the last week, I think, because yeah. it's, it's been ridiculously popular, which has been amazing. Brilliant. It's so exciting. Yeah. It looks yeah. absolutely magical down there. What's the kind of the space like? So it's like, it's amazing. It's like all kind of tunnels, really. Like, um, you know, little passages and interesting little nooks and crannies, you know. So it's got, it's got a really, um, you know, while setting up the show, it was a real intuitive type of thing to set up. You know, Simon, obviously, Costin was the curator and he kind of put something on the wall and then respond to that. So it kind of grew just kind of quite naturally. It's not something that you can really plan. You know, like you see those little uh, models that they do for the, you know, your major white wall galleries where they have to work out exactly where everything goes. Here, that doesn't really work. You have to hold the stuff up on the wall because it's so atmospheric that you can only really do it in person. Yeah, that's so cool. And I suppose like just the, the idea of it being like a crypt and kind of this labyrinth kind of space it kind of there's some there's some magic to the space which you know obviously comes out you know in the work as well so that's lovely how, how it crosses over absolutely so it's you know the thing about the subject matter is it's you know it's about folk uh, ordinary folk and they you know the culture that we all kind of share so to kind of take it out of a conventional uh, art space and put it somewhere that's a bit more submersive and you kind of have to walk down into the crypt and through the kind of dark corridors and there's all these objects you know from Simon Costin's collection that are real actual folk art objects made by real kind of what you consider to be folk artists just people making objects for rituals and things like that and then that hanging alongside my work I think it just creates something much larger than just a kind of regular 
art exhibition I think it kind of goes into lots of different areas of experience you know there's sound there's film there's uh you know the space itself we've had people just interested in crypts and then they come down you know so it's just it attracts all sorts of people far wider than a kind of conventional art show which has been really brilliant Mm, that's really really cool and really necessary as well um for the, the exhibition to make sense that's just brilliant and so this is curated um, in collaboration with the British, the Museum of British Folklore, is that yes. Simon, is Simon the Museum of British Folklore? Yes. So Simon Costin is um, a set designer. So he's worked with all sorts of, you know, fashion designers and photographers and things like Tim Walker and uh, Alexander McQueen. He's he he was you know if you see that documentary about Alexander McQueen, he's in that quite a lot because he was kind of his main set designer. So he's really creative. Uh, as a man, but he also is a collector of the, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful objects. So he's obsessed with folk culture ever since stumbling accidentally as a child onto the Obios Festival on holiday in May Day, you know, so he's really started young. So he's been collecting for years. And he also uh, is a director of the Museum of Witchcraft, the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic in Boscastle and Cornwall. So his actual folklore collection is currently in storage so when I was doing, when I was researching the project, you know, uh, you kind of start on Google and get the books and his name always seems to be involved with everything. So I started thinking, who is this Simon Costin? So I, uh, you know, you know, I thought I need to work with this man because he, you know, I just felt like he really gets why, what, you know, well, his angle that he's coming from is very similar to mine. So I thought, you know, the power of us coming together and he can get his, you know, his collection out of storage. And people in London who don't really, um, well, I know I was like that before I kind of opened my eyes to uh, folk culture, don't really know about it. So there's lots of exhibitions related to folklore that take place at folk centres where you have a returning audience, people that are fascinated in that subject anyway. So mm. we were kind of, you know, obviously those people, uh, it's great that they come too, but they, it also invites a whole new world of people to kind of experience folk culture and, you know, have their eyes open to it. Mm, yeah 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 are there any objects in particular that stand out to you in the exhibition there's this um i'm going to show you it on my camera <laughs> they won't be able to hear to see it although they're listening but anyway you can see it so it's called the uh kern uh babby and this is when they they would cut the last sheath of um from the harvest they'd dress it in a um kind of a little girl's dress and it'd be placed on a pew in the church and then eventually re-sowed back into the ground to ensure that the next harvest would uh, be a successful one. And it's just very haunting. There's something about a corn, a, a kind of child made of corn that's quite like, it's, it's an amazing object that you can't stop looking at. There's something very unnerving about it. And I actually then made my own uh, version of it called the Kern Daddy, which is like a big life-size man there. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, yeah, it's a kind of self-portrait because it's, it's all in my clothes. Unfortunately, they don't do five foot nine mannequins. So I had to get a six foot one, but that's fine. And then, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's just being, it's just incredible to have all these objects, to be honest, because I think that when you go to a regular art exhibition, you're just there to look in a certain way. But I think the minute you walk down to the crypt, there's this whole other level and experience to it. And I think that's why it's resonated so much with such a wide group, of, you know, what diverse groups of people. So we've got people, you know, queuing up to come every day. It's been mad. So uh, it's just been better than we could ever have imagined, to be honest. 
Oh, it's absolutely wonderful. I'm so happy about to hear that and about you know, <laughs> Thank you. snowballing like that. And you've got 20 paintings in there as yes. well. Yes, so that these are all the, you know, when we actually discussed last time on the podcast, I'd just been setting down to get the, the final paintings finished because I've been on this research, mad research period of about five years where I've literally been traveling up and down the British Isles, going to all sorts of folk customs and events. But like there was 20 that I, I, I felt like I need to put a lid on this specific project because you can go on forever. And, you know, when, when does it ever get seen by the public? So I decided I'm going to paint 20, which I knew would be tough. I wanted it to be a bit like, you know, a lot of these things are to do with like endurance and things. So I like the idea of it being something that was a bit of a slog to get done. So it was 20 paintings of all the folk traditions that, that appealed to me most visually, I would say, and yeah. most through their stories. So it was a case of, um, then visiting them, documenting them, uh, listening to the locals, telling the stories, interviewing them, and then responding through a combination of the local storytelling, my direct experience, and then the imagery that I kind of take pictures of on that day. So it's, it's a kind of, um, it's a story in some respects. It's my experience, story that's been told to me and I'm passing it on in a picture. Yes. But then in, yeah, but then in 2019, I, I felt like I needed to do a proper film because my footage was becoming very popular, uh, you know, and the, the people that saw it would love the footage too, because it kind of snaps you out of, um, you know, a kind of almost fairy tale space, and makes it into a contemporary now type of thing. So the film's been very successful at the show. So that's the same 20 uh, traditions in a, it's a long film, but I, I tried to make it short, it just wasn't possible. It's like an hour and 43 minutes. And it's got, uh, it goes through the whole ritual year of 2019 and interviews people, films the rituals. So it's it's quite, it's you know, without realizing it, it became like a pre-COVID time capsule of the ritual landscape of Britain. Yeah, that's incredible. I've seen some of the footage of the film and yeah. it's so exciting. And I, do you know what else I feel like when I've tried to do, you know, if you try to research online or find a book where there's a calendar of the year, mm. like there isn't really a definitive, this is everything that goes on because I suppose these things are happenings and they're elusive and they're, it, it's kind of exciting that they're word of mouth. So I feel like it, it happening through film, it's almost like through your eyes as well. It's so great to be able to go on that journey with you. Oh, well, thanks so much. And, I, and you know, what I soon realised while going to these uh, festivals was that everybody's got uh, camera phones in their hands filming little segments. And the minute you turn up with a proper camera, people treat you, treat and talk to you differently. Mm. So I went with uh, making the whole film on an iPhone, which gave it an intimacy where I could get right in the heart of the action, you know, right in the middle of it all. So it's like you're there. That was the aim. It's like your eyes, you know, and that's why I've called it like frontline folklore, because it's like you're on the front line as you watch the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I yeah. can't wait to come down and, and check it out. So this podcast should be coming out on Thursday. Right. And I think so there will be enough time if there are even any spaces for our listeners to because I've seen you, you're doing events as well. And one of them is with the Boss Morris. Yeah. So unfortunately, <laughs> that is sold out. Oh, it's very popular. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I we can could imagine. Have sold, yeah, we could have sold like... Um, you know so many tickets but because of covid it's very restricted so mm. it's a shame but we're going to be doing a series of online events with the music we're going to continue the kind of ritual britain theme online so if anybody wants to join my mailing list on my website we're going to be you're going to be first to know about online talks that we'll be doing like we had zaki assault here the other day which was amazing 
and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to her. So we're going to be doing an online version of that discussion. We'll be doing uh, a film showing because this film isn't actually out beyond the show at the moment. But there'll be lots of interesting things going on beyond the show too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It's very, very exciting. Um, <laughs> right. And I've got to say, I really love this. I love this kind of folk revival movement that's happening at the minute. Um, yeah. Very much at the heart of. I just think it's, especially in, in light of sort of the state of the, the planet and the climate and the environment, I just feel like, you know, for most people, facts and figures are very hard to connect to. So I feel yes. like really these stories and these kind of rituals and traditions, they're, they're a way of connecting that I think to most people feel a, a lot more sort of heartfelt and authentic. Exactly. Um, so I'm really happy to hear how much it's sort of snowballing um, for yeah. you and for, and for Simon as well um, into, a, into, a, into a movement, really. And um, I was wondering where... I mean, you touched a little bit on the um, the online stuff, but where will the snowball roll to next? <laughs> so like you say, I kind of feel, you know, like you say, it's kind of becoming, like you say, almost like a movement. And for me personally, I can kind of see why. And I hope that I'm helping people connect the dots like my experience did for me. Because I've, I've got like family out in um, Canada, they're like natives, and they would come over when I was a kid and sing all these incredible you know, spiritual songs that used to blow my mind, but I never necessarily thought I had that here. So I was almost like kind of jealous thing, thinking I wish I loved it, but wishing I was part of that culture. And then when I did stumble on the Druids that day uh, in 2016, that I explained to you in the last talk, which kind of was the initial inspiration, it was like, I was like, oh, wow, that's happening here too. And then I was obviously aware of Morris dances and stuff before that, but I hadn't kind of connected the dots. It was just something you'd see on a village green. So then once I really immersed myself in that world, it was like, oh, wow, we do have this kind of, you know, I like to call it an, an activism. It's like, it's, an, it's a folklore activism where you're actually going out your way to reconnect with the seasons, to celebrate with other people, to strengthen your community, to, you know, just celebrate the best part of what it is to be human. And I think that the fact that now people are coming out and kind of doing that, and I hope, you know, a lot of people have said that I've, you know, they've been inspired by what I'm doing. And I think that that's really what I hope that I've done is, you know, help people see the dots that they didn't quite knew connected before. And it makes them now sincerely find a way that they can connect with nature rather than just watching a Netflix documentary that makes you feel sick from, oh God, the world's doomed. And, um, but also then while still just being in London or somewhere quite urban, a large town thinking, it's too late for that, you know, we've gone too far the other way, but I like to think that folklore kind of makes you realise and folk tradition that it's not too far the other way. And I think people are kind of actively doing, you know, reconnecting now. And that's just going to be a very positive impact long-term on the planet. It's not thinking about the now, it's thinking of the bigger picture. Definitely, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me about that. And I, like, it's a pleasure. I know you obviously like kind of, um, you've got a lot, of people turning up and there's a bit of a buzz around it already but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure our listeners will definitely want to go oh yeah well, we want as many people as we can and thanks for having me for the upcoming looking forward to the upcoming art and the postcard yeah we're so excited and obviously thrilled to include you you know again you're always so generous and and donate such beautiful artwork to us um oh, and so uh, they're always you know little bits of magic amongst the amongst the exhibition, <laughs> which is great so this year your your cards depict they're, they're three special places right yes yeah, so we've got Avery stones 
um, last during last year in the lockdown, I, I went and stayed in Avery for four nights on my own. I was joined by a friend, Matthew Shaw, at the end, and he, he's very familiar with Avery. He showed me around a bit as well. But I spent a lot of time on my own just exploring and really absorbing all the kind of ancient monuments around there. And in the back of my mind, I want to do something with that. And obviously my whole mind's in this at the moment, uh, this this show and this series. So it was a great opportunity when Gemma got in touch and said, do you want to be part of this summer, uh, summer auction? It was sort of like, okay, I can lay down some initial ideas of something I may be doing next. So that they're, they're, you know, I'm going to be continuing, obviously looking at British folklore. I can't, I'm, I'd love to go to Europe as well and start looking at their folk traditions, but I can't see us going anywhere for the next couple of years. So uh, I think that the, uh, those little pieces are a little suggestion of some other areas of folklore that I'll be looking at. Very exciting. That's so <laughs> yeah. cool. So it means that these three cards are little bits of what's coming. They're almost like a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> kind yeah, of exactly. Something continue. beyond, something in between this project and the next, that little gap that gave you, and also something I wouldn't have been able to sit down and do yet. So it was nice to have that opportunity just to put something down and see that actually I was pleased with how they came out, if I'm honest, and we'll look forward to looking into the themes surrounding standing stones and things like that. Yeah, so exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah thanks very much ben best of luck with everything i'm really thanks really so excited much. to hear how it's all going Fantastic. all right, all <laughs> right. Have a lovely day enjoy yourself <laughs> thanks so much take care see you soon rosa take care. bye 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 that was ben edge there down in the crypt at king's cross I find his project really beautiful and, as I say, quite necessary in these arguably disconnected and quite harsh times where our planet needs some TLC. So, like I said, Ben's cards are lots 387 to 389 in our summer auction and there is a link in the description of this podcast for you to take a look. And more info also about Ben can be found on his website, benedge.co.uk. Now, next up, we have quite a different artist, though actually there's arguably some crossover in that they are both concerned in different ways with the natural world. Is that one of my tenuous links? Maybe, maybe not. I'll let you be the judge of that. Anyway, so in the episode, Dave White and I discuss dinosaurs, authenticity and Nike Jordans. Dave's card is lot 397 in the auction and you can check that out at artonapostcard.com and let us know what you think of it uh, on our Instagram at, in, at artonapostcard. You can email me rosa.tor at tepsitrust.org.uk. I know lots of you get really excited about Dave White, so here he is and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello. Good afternoon. <laughs> Hiya, how are you? Very good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, I'm not too bad. Where are you? This looks so cool. Are you like in an arcade or something? Well, I should just grow up really. Um, this is this is my office, which is attached next to my studio. What's that behind you? Is it Pac-Man? No, so that, that's called Dragon's Lair, which was like a machine from 1983, which when you see it in 1983, it blew your mind because it was running off laser discs. So everything looks like little pixel graphics, like Space Invaders. This thing rolled up and it was like a proper cartoon. So it's crazy. It's kind of got a lot of fame because it was in Stranger Things. Um, 
So it's kind of come around. Anyway, so that's one of the things I have in here. My Star Wars love has never lost uh, any momentum when I first saw it in 77. So, yeah, just a big kid. I have to admit, I've never actually seen a Star Wars film, but I feel like I've missed the boat. With Like, everyone who loves Star Wars loves Star Wars so much that I just feel that I can't. It's like a club, you know, I'm not involved. It is a big club. It really is a big club, but you've got to watch it. I mean, you're the second person. I'm 50 now, and you're the second person, as long as I've been alive, <laughs> that hasn't seen it. And the other one was my sister-in-law. So anyway, there we go. But you must watch them, because they're just amazing. Yeah, no, I will do. I am into sci-fi as well, so there's no reason why I shouldn't. <laughs> um, so it's been really fun looking through your artworks ahead of this um, interview and just checking out kind of just the, the vast scope of how much you've done and how much you've painted. Um, and I just was wondering if you could, just to kick us off, introduce yourself and what you do for the listeners who might not already know. Okay, well, my name's Dave White. I'm a painter from the UK. Um, I've been around doing what I've been doing for a long, long time. Um, and I guess if I could sum it up, really, what I've done, even though there's lots and lots of different series that I'm known for, I guess my affinity that I have is with stuff that I have a deep connection with. So, you know, for the past kind of 15 years, I've kind of been working very closely, studying animals, um, and that's formed the backbone of my work and what I do. And the focus has been looking at things that are like critically endangered and how close we are to losing so many species. Um, and that's kind of what it's been really. I mean, there's been many things. I mean, I, I kind of got quite a lot of success with a series I did in like 2002, which were based on sneakers. Um, I'm a big sneaker collector. I've always loved them ever since being a kid. And I just decided one day to do a whole series of paintings based on them and then the kind of, momentum gained with that. And I never would have foreseen in a million years that I'd have ended up having my own like Air Max models and Jordans. I mean, I, I mean, I've never worn them because it's still, it's like a pinch yourself moment, you know what I mean? So, but yeah, I mean, I guess to sum up what I am and, and what I do, it, it's things that I have a deep connection with and things that I care deeply about. That's what I work from. Wonderful, yeah. So you mentioned the endangered animal thing. Have you heard the news about the white rhino? I haven't even been able to post it. I just, I saw it last week and I just couldn't get my head around it. I did um, a series called Critical about five years ago. And one of the statistics that was amazing, I did this moving piece, which was a Hainan gibbon, which is this beautiful gibbon that lives in China. And there was something like 13 of them left in the world. And yet, for me, even though we all love technology, we all love Macs and iPhones and everything, in the same place, in the same country where iPhones are made, these things exist. And I think Apple's quarter was something like 640 million iPhone, I think it was tens at the time, had been made and sold. And that kind of figure just doesn't tally up for me. We're all so immersed in what we do and how fast the world moves. And it's only when you get like a headline like we saw last week, which is just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, there's no comebacks from it. And that's, to be honest with you, that's what fuels my work. That, they're not 
just pretty paintings of animals. Every exhibition that I do is focusing on something that is to do with the scarcity of things in this earth, really. And, and I'm just speechless about it, really. So, Yeah. Does the scarcity and does that kind of feeling of, um, I don't know, a kind of urgency about your work, does that help to guide the... I don't know whether I can call it a style or, or just the way that you paint these animals. So obviously there's quite a sort of scattered effect to your paintings. Um, is that fueled by this sense of urgency, do you think? I mean, when you look at the movement pieces, there's, there's, if you look at kind of my back catalogue, there's things that I always revisit, like sharks, silverback gorillas, hummingbirds, things like that. And many a time I do these movement pieces, which look like they're animated so it'll start with a very pale one and then the next one will be a little bit like more resolved and then it goes on and on and on until the final one is actually the finished one so it has this kind of flurry of movement um some people have interpreted that as ghosts i'm saying nothing um some people get it as movement which is another way of looking at it um and i think the kind of the fluency and the kind of immediacy of how I work, which is something I don't know. I mean, I just do it. I've got, I know exactly what I'm doing, but I don't think about painting when I'm working. But what I will say is I try and get them to look alive. It's trying to get something that is like on a two dimensional surface to have a kind of a spontaneity and a kind of real dynamism that gives it a, you know, a, a kind of presence. And that's kind of, one of the factors of what my work is about, really. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Do you ever, I really wanted to ask you this, actually, do you ever paint them from live? Do you ever take, you know, seated animals and paint them or, or are they always from images? No, I mean, I basically like, you know, there's a very specific process that I do. You know, I'll go to like wildlife parks and zoos and see them in the wild as much as I can. Um, and I'll do lots of drawings there um, and kind of really get to know what I'm, I'm looking at. And that's the reason I revisit certain things because, you know, a lot of the subjects that I say that I kind of tackle a couple of years once again, it's because I've seen something, I've seen a spark or something's really caught my imagination that's really incredible. Um, but yeah, that's always been a process. So, I mean, I surround myself with lots of lots and lots of things to immerse myself in whichever species I'm looking at at the time. Mm -hmm. Do you have a um? Do you have a favourite animal that you've painted? Oof. I mean, I do have a favourite animal. I mean, elephants are my absolute favourite. I mean, oh. hands down, they're just the soul that you feel when you encounter one or you get up close to one, and that kind of eye contact. And that's something that is very, very important in my work. Is the uh, the kind of eye contact in my work that bounces back to the viewer. As for paintings, I mean, I'm a funny old fish, to be honest with you. I basically will put 110% into every piece I do, but once I slow down, once basically I, my brain starts thinking, you know, maybe you should put a bit of purple there or maybe you should do this. Once my brain switches into that mode, then I know the painting is finished because I don't think when I'm working at all. Um, and I'm only as good as the last one. So in answer to your question, I'm only as good as the last painting that I've done. And then I don't look at them again. Mm. So if you're not looking at them again, 
if you're revisiting an animal will it be are you trying to achieve sort of as fresh eyes as possible or a new approach or are you are you leaning into what you've done before or like how does that work that's a really interesting question I guess what's really interesting for me as a painter is you never stop learning I mean like you say I've got a quite a distinctive style and even though I do you could probably if you ask somebody what my work looked like and say describe it with three things somebody might say there's drips on it somebody might say there's kind of loose marks on it where really as my work has developed and progressed over the past decade it's far far more than that and it's like the drawing element and the kind of the camouflage and the patination of the animal. So if I'm, for instance, doing a hummingbird, which is what I'm working on at the moment, I'm working on a whole brand new series of those. Um, and some people can easily take it for granted. You could look at, you could put five of my pieces in an exhibition of a hundred people and you'd be able to pick out which one is which. But saying that, um, a hummingbird and a tiger and a great white shark are so, so different in their appearance, in their camouflage, in their colour, in their character that it's like it's kind of that's that's the challenge for me and the, the the brushes that I use and the applications that I use um you know that's the kind of the challenge for me and that's why I love revisiting things um and then when you take small things like hummingbirds and then you make them massive and that's a whole different kettle of fish like so I love looking at your um Instagram page because you do post the drawing stage as well and it's yeah. really interesting to see that process of how you get from, you know, just your journey to the final piece is often a lot more um, probably uh, rigorous than people might expect because it has this effortless kind of feel to it. I'm very, very grateful and very, very blessed that I have a very individual style that, you know, I, I came across very, very early. In fact, it was in my second day of my general art and design course when I just left school and you try a few different things and you do a bit of fashion you do a bit of graphics and then you, you do a bit of fine art painting and as soon as I was given oil paint that was it I mean even though the works look very different then you would still be able to tell that they were mine um that the way the, the paint moved and the kind of the fluency and the kind of dynamism that's just who I am as a person and I think you know, I'm grateful that my work is honest and is an honest reflection of me as a human being. Um, you know, I've never faked it. I've never kind of, you know, followed fashion. And, and at the end of the day, you know, I don't really look at anybody else's work. I'm aware of lots of things and lots of painters and everything, but I don't look at anybody. I, I just completely immerse myself in what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, art for me, you know, when I was in my third year of my degree, I basically went, well, for the whole degree, I went from the letter A to, to the letter Z every lunchtime for an hour in the library and finished my degree with an unbelievable knowledge of art history and who did what and what was what. And then I just came to the conclusion that art is exactly the same as food in the sense that you do not need to know who made your meal. You do not need to know who painted that painting you, like, or falling in love with somebody, you have an instantaneous like, re reaction to it. And that's what I think good art should be. And when you're saying about people who would look at my work and you know, understand what it is, it doesn't matter if you're a brain surgeon or you're a milkman, it makes no odds. It's like, if my work gives a response to people, then my, my work is done, if that makes sense.
definitely. How do you find operating the kind of art industry in the art world? Like, how do you find it from a, I guess, less like the artist and more like the, you know, the businessman or the brand or like whatever? How yeah, do you- yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm very, very lucky in the sense that I've been with my amazing wife um, for a long, long time. As a couple, we've been together for 35 years. Wow. Um, and we've been through ups and downs in my career and, and kind of you know the whole journey of life and, and everything that goes with it and Chris basically like manages the whole kind of gallery side and she's the first part of call if somebody wants to discuss work with me or galleries want to open up discussions with me so you know I'm very grateful in the sense that she's there and she's the kind of the base and it leaves me to be able to you know get on with my work unless it's like something obviously which is as pleasurable as this and discussing what I'm doing with you um so, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's really, really important, I think, to kind of just be able to focus on what you do. Um, and that's something that I've always done. Mm, yeah, that's, like you said, really, really lucky. And how lovely to have had that, you know, constant in that person that you love with you for the whole ride. That's amazing. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is, uh, is your, is she also an artist or is she into uh-huh. Not so she loves art, but no, she's she's not at all. I mean, as I say, we we just you know decided that it was just a logical step to to work together, and and you know, and that's how it's sort of been for as, as long as I can remember. Really, that sounds great. Um, I really love your trainers that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, and I know that they were a really big success as well. And I was just wondering. How does an artist who's, you know, in the fine art world, in the painting world, like move over into having an opportunity like that? What happened? It's a really interesting one in the sense that I literally was sitting in the studio looking at Air Max 95s like in 2001. And I was just sitting there staring at them. And I just thought that is the most incredible object. You take it away from its function which is to either run in or whatever, or any sport and kind of sneak or whatever. I just thought, do you know what? It just deserves to be immortalised. And that's what I did. And I just did 10 paintings. And then one of them got on the cover of Creative Review magazine. And the rest is kind of history. There was no planning. There was no pattern to it. And when you're asking about how do you cross over, I think there's a big danger where people find that they look at other artists in the world. I mean, they look at people who have, like collaborations nowadays are kind of to a penny. It doesn't matter if you're a rapper or you're a kind of like fashion model or whatever, everybody seems to collaborate, which is an amazing thing. It's a really diverse thing. But all I would say is how to cross over. I think at the end of the day, my relationship with Nike and Jordan, you know, goes back a long, long time. And it's kind of, it was, Nike could have basically sued me. You know, let's have no bones about it. I'm taking their IP, I'm taking their iconography and making it as art and things like that. And, you know, but they didn't do that and they kind of saw the worth in it. And that's how the collaboration kind of started. I mean, we've been working together, I think, since 2005, which is crazy. Um, But in answer to your question, I think if you're doing something that's original enough and you are doing something that is honest enough and you are producing something that is exciting and dynamic or has something to say then I think for the right reasons you should collaborate and I mean you know I'm very very blessed and very very grateful for all of the 
collaborative stuff I've done, but I'm very, very, very disciplined in the sense that I don't work with anybody. If I don't like your brand and I don't like your ethics and I don't like, you know, I'm not a take the money and run guy. I mean, there's been many offers to work with people, you know, but I've, you know, very respectfully turned them down because it just wasn't a right fit and it wasn't right for my work. So it's kind of like, for me, first and foremost, if something, a if a collaboration is going to be the best of the artist and the best of the brand producing something new and unique, always. Mm -hmm. If it's going to be basically to make a fast book for either, forget it. So that's, that's my view on it anyway. Yeah, that's great. I love that you had this passion for trainers originally and then it kind of spawned out of something really, really natural because I think it's really into here that you were just doing the thing that you wanted to do and that was enough, you know, that, that got you to having this amazing opportunity. Well, I think that's the thing and it's like, I mean, I think the most interesting thing that's like happened, I think, was, you know, in 2002, I made a series of paintings based on sneakers and then my last footwear collaboration was Nike taking two of the Albion images, which was a fox and a rabbit, and then using the artwork on the sneakers, if that makes sense. And it's kind of, it just went full circle. So who knows if I'll work with them again? I mean, I love them to bits. I'm still a massive collector. You know, fingers crossed we do something. But if we don't, I'm very grateful for everything that's occurred. Mm, yeah, wonderful. And also, um, we are super, super duper grateful for your um, <laughs> generous donation to Art on the Postcard. And I would just love it if you could talk us a little bit behind what is behind the artwork. And uh, yeah, just fill us in. Okay, well, I'm just looking at the poster behind you, which I haven't been able to take my eyes off since we've been talking. <laughs> this one? Yeah. This is uh, the Monsters in America. So it's like, all the folklore kind of monsters that that come up in each state so they're like okay. you know the spook monster the knobby the momo they all have a really amazing name because okay. <laughs> i mean basically all i could see was like a plesiosaurus and it looks like a diplodocus in the background i'm like roses into dinosaurs i'm going to ask her so what i made for art on a postcard it's always been something that's prevalent and something that's you know happening in my work i've never made something that i just think Oh, I'll just do that because it's popular. So it was about two years ago, I was just sitting in a studio and I just had a flashback to my absolute obsession as a child, which was dinosaurs. I mean, I can't begin to describe to you like how much I was into them. And just before I went back to doing the animal works, um, I actually did, I had a sketchbook, I had a moleskin and I had a hummingbird in one page and a t-rex in the other and it's like i was which one was i going to do which one was i going to come back with and basically i went with the hummingbirds and spent the last decade working on animals and then as i said i was just sitting there and just went i'm going to paint dinosaurs i'm going to do them i'm really going to do them and it was just to basically use this subject matter as something to really cement everything i've done before I didn't want them to be cheesy. I didn't want to, didn't watch Jurassic Park, you know, even though I love those movies. I wanted to basically paint these amazing things that no human being has seen and just do them and try and get as much life into them as I possibly could. Um, so I spent 18 months in, in complete secrecy working on this series. And then obviously COVID kicked off. 
Um, but we decided anyway to launch them last November, which we did. So the, the piece for art on a postcard is a T-Rex is my favorite. And I just wanted, because the size at A6 is so little, and I just wanted to get that energy and that feel. And I just thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And it was a real challenge, but it was really good fun to make. So that's what I decided to do. Wow. I'm so, so grateful. We all are at Art on a Postcard for your donation. So thank you very, very much. And it's also great to know that it's your favourite dinosaur as well. <laughs> I think <laughs> the UX is quite a, a crowd pleaser of the dinosaurs, I would say. <laughs> I, I mean, I reckon, yeah. I mean, the thing is, is like, you know, when you... you're into things as a kid and sometimes you completely and utterly forget. And then when you walk into the Natural History Museum at any age and you see like, I mean, I think it's not there at the moment, there's another exhibition on, and you see that massive Diplodocus-like skeleton, you just get overwhelmed because you're just like, Jesus, like these things were alive. These things like walked the earth and it's like, you know, now they are gone, completely gone. And unless someone goes the old Michael Crichton route and tries to bring them back with, you know, genealogy and all that business, like, but um, you just forget. And that's, the, it was just cementing those and doing this series to basically make people realise that even though people, you know, are quite aware that tigers and, you know, elephants and things like that are on the endangered list, when you look down the hundred endangered list, you get your head blown off with what is so scarce. I mean, owls in this country, hedgehogs in this country. It's like, then you start looking around the world, chimpanzees, sea lions, penguins, and you start to think, well, something's got to give here and we really need to do something. And like I said in the start, that has always been the backbone of my work. And that's why I made the extinct collection um, on dinosaurs. Yeah, and I think the dinosaur is a great emblem of, of that because it's such a ferocious looking and sturdy looking animal that, you know, to think that they um, were completely wiped out to the point of total extinction. And then you think about, you know, the tawny owl or whatever it might be that is becoming extinct yeah. and you're like, wow, if, 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 you know, if that monster can be knocked out, then anything's vulnerable. We need to save, you know, protect as much as we can. So I think it's a great reminder and a great emblem. And like I said, we're, we're super grateful to have it involved in the exhibition. Well, I mean, as I say, anything I can do with my work to help charity and such great causes like yourselves, I mean, you know, it's a done deal. I mean, I work with Tusk, I work with, you know, Project Zero. I mean, anyone that reaches out, I'll always do my best to, to oblige. And then I guess our little relationship is like, a done deal it's like every year yeah but the thing is i have to beat that one now next year <laughs> yeah that's, that's the thing it's like you know so anyway <laughs> all right well it was lovely lovely chatting to you i'll let you get on with your day and enjoy the sunshine if you can <laughs> i'll try we've had eight inches of rain in the last month and the sun is out so i'm going to finish this painting and then i'm going to go and uh, chill but it's been an absolute pleasure and um, best of luck to you and the team for the auction Thank you so much, Dave. See you later. Take bye. care. Bye-bye. ever so much for listening to this week's episode i know it's something different we had two artists on instead of one shock <laughs> but if you could handle the excitement and you find it um, in your capabilities at this point in time to go onto our website and have a look through the summer auction cards then i 
can seriously urge that you do that because it is a really exciting summer exhibition this year. We've got some fantastic names and Dave White and Ben Edge have produced some absolutely beautiful cards for us, which for which we are always eternally grateful. So hopefully we'll see some of you at the Private View on Tuesday. If not, and you're one of our international listeners, then you can walk through the exhibition uh, using our Go With Yamo digital exhibition space, information of which can be found at gowithyamo.com or artandpostcard.com. So please, please do take a look there. It's a really, it's kind of a really impressive way of feeling immersed in an exhibition without actually having been there. So thank you very much for listening to today's episode. We'll be back next week.